been great singing this morning. I hope you meant the words of that last song. I hope you meant the words of all the songs. My soul waits for the Lord. I hope that we are a church of believers who wait longingly for the Lord. We not only long for His return when we will see Him face to face, we long for Him throughout the course of the week for the mercy and the grace that He shows us. And so thank you for singing that. It's such a joy uh, to be able to sing that and think about that with you this morning. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans 5. As I do that, may I give a verse to all fathers? Uh, So if you're a father, have someone else turn in your Bible to Romans 5 and look up here at me just for a second. Uh, For the mothers on Mother's Day, I gave you a verse. For fathers, this is your verse. Ephesians 6, verse 4. Fathers... Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Um, I, in my fatherhood, I've tended for some reason to focus on the first part, not trying to provoke my children to anger. But the positive second part demands our active energy fathers. Bring them up in the nurture and the instruction of the Lord. I trust that God will give us grace to do that. Now, as we consider Romans 5 today, we consider Romans 5, uh, we come to a new section of the book of Romans. It's actually a subsection of sorts. If you remember, in Romans chapters 1 through 11, we come to Paul's main theological reason for writing the book of Romans. It is so that we might understand and know the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why these chapters are here. After that, he gives a pastoral reason. He wants the Roman believers to live in ways that reflect the gospel, especially wanting them to Uh, be unified together for his missiological purpose. You remember this? This is the big structure of Romans. Theological reason, know the gospel. Uh, Pastoral reason, live in conformity to the gospel so that you might be able to help me reach Spain. Romans chapter 15, the missiological reason. And so since Paul wants his believers, his readers, to understand the gospel in Romans 1 through 11, he uncovers three things. This is how I see it. I mean, there's so many commentaries on Romans that have been written. Uh, you know, the, the multitude of people have written and spoken on this. They've all got different outlines for the book. But if we're going to understand and know the gospel, Paul unfolds three things. He unfolds the nature of the gospel, Romans 1 through 4. And the power of the gospel, Romans 5 through 8. And the history of the gospel, Romans 9 through 11. And so in this sermon, uh, we begin the second section where Paul highlights the power of the gospel and its effects on our lives. Among other things, what we'll learn in these four chapters is that for those of us who've been made right with God, we not only gain justification, we also gain peace, grace, Joy, hope, life, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Okay, we'll repeat those as we go throughout the book. 
More specifically, we'll learn in these chapters at least six large ways that the gospel impacts us. It secures for us some foundational benefits. That's what Romans 5, 1 through 11 are going to be about. It secures for us some foundational benefits. It also then delivers us from the condemnation of Adam's sin. I know some of you are looking forward to Romans 5, 12 through 21. I'm actually praying for the rapture to occur uh, before we get to Romans 5, 12 through 21. It delivers us from the condemnation of Adam's sin. But then it also frees us from sin's reign, Romans chapter 6. If I were to write one word over Romans 6, it would be the word sin. It frees us from the law's captivity, Romans 7. One word over Romans 7, it's law. And then it does so by or through the Spirit's power, Romans 8, 1 through 30. One word over Romans 8, it's the word Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And then finally, it secures us against anything that would threaten to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8, 31 through 39. So those are some of the larger sweeps, but as we begin our sermon this morning, we begin looking at how our justification brings us many foundational benefits in Romans 5, 1 through 11. Now, I'm only going to preach on Romans 5, 1 and 2 today, uh, and the next few sermons will cover the rest of those verses. But we're talking about foundational benefits of being justified by God through faith. Imagine sitting across the negotiating table from someone who is offering you your dream job. I've got two sons, I think, who would love to play in the National Football League someday. And so for them, I know that's what they would imagine. Perhaps it's not the same for you. What is it for you? What's your dream job? The person is sitting across the table from you And he's offering this to you. And so in those moments, you try not to appear too eager or too excited because you can't even believe this is finally happening. You would gladly accept the job for what you get to do and how much you, you get paid. But then the negotiator works through the benefit package associated with the position. He works through all the fringe benefits involved if you will sign the contract. You know, the dental, the health, the phone, the car, all of it. With such a great job and benefits package, you quickly sign the deal. Like, where do I got to sign? You sign it, and then you walk away rejoicing. This imagined scenario is you're going out, you're greeting everyone you meet, all of the you know, unfamiliar people, you're shaking everyone's hands because you're so excited. In our text this morning, Paul considers some of the benefits of those who are justified by God on the basis of faith. And so in this sermon, we will inform you of those foundational benefits and encourage you to walk away rejoicing. My hope is that if I were to visit Grace Grounds today during the break, we'd have some people just talking like can you imagine can you believe those benefits he just talked about i'd hope that if i were to come to your abs class you would break the proper protocol before class you know you just sit there and you stare straight ahead you don't look at anyone 
But you actually turn to the side and say, like, how in the world did we get those things? I want you to know these things, and I want you to walk away rejoicing. Now, Paul describes three foundational benefits of justification in Romans 5 through 11. These benefits come through the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Although I won't be preaching on all 11 verses, I'd like to read them, and I'll ask you to look for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as we read. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only this. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore... We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom We have now received reconciliation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that you would help us as we meditate and focus on some of the foundational benefits that we enjoy if we have been justified by faith through Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to clearly communicate these things. I pray for every listener I pray that they would be in tune with your word, listening, paying close attention, so that by the end, they could walk away rejoicing in what you've done for them in Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So this morning, we're going to look at three foundational benefits of the gospel. Uh, We'll deal with one, two, and three, and when we get to the third one, you're going to see that it expands the whole way down to verse 11, so we can't do... All of the work with the third one. But the first benefit, if you're taking notes, and there's a handout in the bulletin. You could have gotten one uh, as you come in as well. If not, you can just, you know, write it on your hand. Uh, The first point is peace. We have peace with God. Look again at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now one of the first things I'd point out to you in Romans 5 is that there's a dramatic shift between the chapters. If you're looking at the end of Romans 4, you will see that Paul uses a lot of second and third person verbs and pronouns. Okay, He's talking about uh, you and they and them. But when we get to this text, he uses first person pronouns. He talks about we, we. Paul wants the Roman readers, he wants us by extension, to not only consider how the gospel benefits him, but how it benefits each of us as believers in Jesus Christ. Now the word peace that's used in this text is the first benefit we enjoy. It's it's a word that is used 91 times in the New Testament. And it's used primarily by New Testament authors to emphasize two things. Okay, so when I think of peace, I think of these two things. First, it's a way of stating it negatively. Peace means the absence of hostility. The absence of hostility. We were enemies with God, but now that hostility is absent. The second emphasis of this word is stating it positively. It's the experience of well-being. Okay, so if you're just looking at it as just what we don't no longer have, we're no longer under the wrath of God, that's not quite enough. Peace talks about uh, the experience of well-being. Okay, the animosity is replaced with wellness. Now, the Greek term that's used here often is used to translate the Hebrew word shalom in the Septuagint. And that word might fundamentally speak of the well-being, the prosperity, or the salvation of a godly person. That is, what the Hebrew term emphasizes in the Old Testament, I think, is the more positive sense of wellness with God. And in this passage, Paul speaks here of something that a person gains, this wellness with God, when he or she is justified by faith. Now, one of the things I'll point out to you about this verb, and there's a little bit of a textual variant here that could make you interpret it differently, but I I stand confidently with the way it's translated here. One of the things I'll point out to you is that this peace is not something that Paul is longing for or desires for himself or others. This peace is something that is a present possession of believers in Jesus Christ. In other words, we have it. We have peace. We have a new state of existence in which we live, and it is defined as being at peace with God. Animosity is broken away. We now enjoy wellness with God because of the work of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul makes that abundantly clear in the passage when he says that this peace is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that in verse 1? It's through our Lord Jesus Christ that we have this. And this is a significant point, right? We should not just go quickly over it. God didn't do it in any other means. Didn't use any other agent to do this. This peace that we now have with God comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the interesting things about Romans 5 through 8 is that this is not the only benefit that Paul imagines 
or that he knows is ours through Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, at the end of every section, remember I said there are six major sections? At the end of every section, he'll close by saying, through or in our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to show you this. So he says it in verse 1, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 5, in verse 11, he closes this way. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, we have joy because of him. Then Romans 5, verse 21, at the end of that section on Adam and Christ, we see uh, that we have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See this? Paul's ending every section. All of the benefits, all of the blessings are ours through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Many of you know this. This is for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The end of Romans 6, that major section within Romans 5 through 8. We have something in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's eternal life. Of course, we're looking at the end of Romans 7, but then we realize that Romans 8 verse 1 actually concludes Romans 7. It's one of those unfortunate chapter divisions. But I love Romans 8 and verse 1. Therefore, now there's no condemnation to those who are what? In Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are united with Christ. Finally, Romans 8 and verse 39, we learn that Uh, Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is found where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul sees all of the benefits of Romans 5 through 8 as coming as we are in Jesus. As we are identified and united with him. All God has for us is in or through our union with Jesus. This is a major doctrine, by the way, union with Christ, which likely demands its own sermon series someday. Hold on for that one. Union with Christ. All of these benefits come through Jesus and our belief in the gospel. And so, In Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, we learn it is because of Christ's amazing work that we are free from all hostility with God and the anxiety that it brings so that we enjoy wellness with him. See, the world is desperately seeking for peace. This is why they form so many alliances and treaties. But in this text, we learn we have peace. With God. What, a, what an amazing foundational benefit of being justified by faith in Jesus Christ. You have peace with Him. But the foundational benefits don't consist only of peace. You go to verse 2 and you see we also get grace. So if you're taking notes, pull out the hand, right? Peace, right? Grace. Grace, verse 2. Look at verse 2. And we're just going to look at the first part. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, that seems like a brief little statement, but it's packed full. All right, so I want to consider this with you by 
just drawing out a few ideas about grace here. First, the word grace in this verse, I think, is used in an unusual way in Romans. I went through every occurrence. And by the way, if you've got a Romans journal, you can go through, go through and do this. Look for every time the word grace is used. And then at the end, after you find them all, see what grace does. Okay, it's, a, it's, a, it's a noun. See, see what's attributed to it. See, see what the objects of it are. Okay? But grace in Romans. Here I think it's used a bit abnormally. Normally the word grace is used the way that God acts toward people. Except when we offer thanksgiving back to God in a few places. But grace usually speaks of God's kindness or favor that he demonstrates to undeserving people. In the book of Romans, the word grace is used 24 times. Prove me wrong. Okay, go through it, see if you can find the 25th. Maybe I counted twice. Maybe it was 23. Read Romans. It's used 24 times. The word grace in Romans does this. Grace is received. Grace overflows or abounds. In different texts in Romans. Grace ensures promises like the promise made to Abraham. What I found interesting in Romans is that often uh, grace is personified. It's treated as a person or a being so that grace uh, justifies, uh, so that grace also gives free gifts like in Romans chapter 5 or Grace is like a ruler, a person who reigns and rules. Romans chapters 5 and 6. And it's also personified so that grace chooses. In our text, though, the nuance is different. A unique use. Now, one writer, I think, summarized this well. His name is Douglas Moo. He says... Here, uh, the word grace does not denote the manner in which God acts or the gift that God gives. But here it is. Ready? But the state or the realm into which God's redeeming work transfers the believer. So Mu says it's like a state or a realm. In other words, Paul says we have access into it. Into Grace. Grace is like a sphere or a realm of our existence within which we live. Okay, Paul is talking about the sphere or the dimension marked out by one thing. God's grace. God's grace. Okay, so we get grace. It's like a sphere or a realm that we now live within okay but he says it a little bit differently than that he says he says in the text he says we have access by faith into this grace so as we continue to to look at this we consider the word access okay the word access is a word that's only used three times by paul in the new testament but there are some secular uses that help us understand what access means a little bit better In other places, access describes the access that ships have to a port city through a good harbor. Or the access that insiders give to a powerful ruler. If someone who knows the ruler well, 
can grant access to the ruler. So in our text, Jesus, through the gospel, gets us into the sphere or realm of grace. It's kind of my, you know, dummy version of explaining. Jesus gets us into the realm or sphere of God's grace. But then it continues. Paul's succinct description of this blessing is not finished. He says that we stand in it. We stand in this grace. The access we have into God's grace because of our faith in Jesus is not temporary. It would be depressing to enter into the sphere of God's grace for a day or a month or a year and have to leave to go back into wrath. But that's not the way it is for us. We stand in this. All of God's power in service to him, showing favor to us instead of showing his wrath toward us. We get grace and we remain in it. That's how I take that in which we stand. Now again, I've got all kinds of commentaries on Romans, okay, and I was reading them to see what what does Paul mean by stand? And they have like different ideas about it. Okay, I'll save you from all of those. I think he's talking about, you know, this initial access we have into grace and we get to remain there. We stand there. Again, I, I enjoyed the singing today. Took note on one of the songs. He said, matter of fact, I think the singing the last two weeks, I think it's been amazing. It's been so encouraging to my heart. One of the songs we sang today was In Christ Alone. And the chorus is pretty good, right? No power of man, no power of hell, no no scheme of death can ever pluck me from his hand until he comes or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. If I could just edit it a little wee bit, and that's, it's illegal. I can't change the song, can't change them on the words, but I would say, here in the realm or sphere of grace I stand. I stand. We have grace, men and women. We have God's favor. We have access into it. And we stand. As you go to the, um, what is this coffee place called again? Grace Grounds. <laughs> oh yeah, Grace. Grace Grounds. What in the world? How could I miss that? That was my one opportunity. As we go to the Grace Grounds today, we just remember. We are abiding, remaining within the grace of God. What a blessing. Now there's one other, one other that we will begin to see today. Justification by faith in Jesus not only brings peace with God and do we gain access in the grace, but one more thing. Mentioned three times from Romans 5, verse 3 through 11 is the word rejoice. I don't know if you saw that when we look through it. Look at uh, actually the middle of verse 2. Middle of verse 2. And we rejoice in hope. Look at the beginning of verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Look at verse 11 and how this passage ends. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, 
You don't even have to be a preacher to make this outline, right? Rejoicing in three things here. Now, the word rejoice is important. It's a word that is used five times in Romans in two chapters. We just saw three of them. The other two times it's used, it's used in Romans chapter 2 of what the Jewish people do. They boast in or exalt in their exclusive relationship to God and to the law of Moses. That's what the Jewish people were doing in Romans 2. And uh, those two occurrences, by the way, are verse 17 and verse 23, Romans 2, 17 and 23. But in Romans 5, Paul is describing, in my opinion, how New Covenant believers properly boast or exalt in something as well. Okay, so the word rejoice is a fine translation, but I actually prefer the word boast or exalt in. And so the third thing, benefit, that we get, if you're taking notes, remember your hand uh, started with peace, grace, and the third one's long, exaltation. Now, I did not say exaltation. It's E-X-U-L. Exaltation. We we get to exalt or boast in certain things. Okay, and Paul's going to unfold what those are throughout the rest of the paragraph. Okay, now, we're only going to deal with the first one today, so don't be nervous. Okay, we're going to deal with the end of verse 2. And uh, so we will exalt first in hope of the glory of God. We exalt in hope of the, or we boast in hope of the glory of God. That's the object of our boasting. Now, in Romans chapter 4, we considered Abraham who believed in hope. Remember, against all odds, he believed in the promises that God had given to him, the, the hope that God had given to him, that God would give him a son. And that came true. Here in this passage, we boast in hope. We boast in hope. This is something uh, that we have as a sure expectation that provokes us to boast or exalt. Now, the word hope is not just any kind of hope, but it's hope, the phrase says, hope in the glory of God. And so for the rest of our sermon, you know, the next 45 minutes, just kidding, we're going to consider what is the hope of the glory of God, because this is what we're supposed to leave here exalting in today. So what is it? Well, I want to make three statements, and you might just write these down, think about these. If you don't write them down, think through them thoroughly. See if you agree, and I hope this helps you understand what hope of the glory of God means. Okay, first, hope has to do with our certain future. There are a lot of things of which we're unsure this morning. 
If I were to pull the group, I'm sure some of you are unsure whether you're going to go out for dinner this afternoon or whether you'll go home to eat. Some of you uh, are unsure about whether you'll actually go on vacation this summer. Some of you are unsure about a new job opportunity or, or whether you'll stay where you're working. Okay, But the word hope carries with it no uncertainty in the Bible. It speaks of confidence. Hope is our confident and sure anticipation as a follower of Jesus. So the word hope, when it's this translation is used in the New Testament, it's not a possibility. This is a guarantee. Okay, we got that. Now, that's pretty easy. I think most of you would, uh, would know that or understand that. Now, the second statement I'll make about this is the glory of God is fundamentally God's weight or the full significance of his being and presence. So we're just kind of taking a phrase. Hope, sure, confident expectation. Glory. What's glory of God? It is God's weight or the full significance of his being. The Hebrew word for glory in the Old Testament originally literally meant weighty. That someone or something was heavy. Okay. Matter of fact, if you're reading through the Old Testament scripture, you come across a man by the name of Eli. And the word for uh, glory was used for him. He was a glorious man. Okay, fathers, that's your goal, right? To be glorious. Not in this way. Eli was heavy. He was heavy. Weighty. Now that literal meaning came to have metaphorical or symbolic meaning. In the sense of someone having gravitas. Or in the Greek it came to mean someone who was impressive. Today we might talk about someone who's a heavyweight in his field. Not necessarily meaning he's overweight, but just meaning he's a, he's a man or a, she's a woman of significance. She's an expert in what he or see, she says should be considered. So when this term glory is applied to God, the word glory can speak or does speak of the full weight of his entire being. I describe it as the sum of all of his attributes. Put all those things together that describe God. And what is left? What do you have? You have God's glory. The full weight of who he is. His entire being and presence. So if we're going to understand this, we need to understand the second statement. The glory of God is fundamentally God's weight or the full significance of his being and his presence. One more statement. Ready? You've done the work so far. Hopefully this helps you. Third, the way we hope for the glory of God is by looking forward to gain something that we lost or that we departed from. Perhaps you recall that the word glory has been used already in Romans. There are a few places that just stick out in my mind. Uh, Romans 1. Why don't you turn there? Let me just read it to you. Romans 1.23. Remember the word glory there? Glory of God here. Romans 1.23. Actually, even look at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What a bad exchange. This is what we do as human beings. We make an exchange. We give up 
God's glory, the full weight of his being and presence, and we, we exchange it for the image of creeping things. You remember Romans 3, verse 23, as we use it to define sin? More glory is used there as well. Romans 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and have fallen short of what? The glory. The glory of God. Because of our own sins, we all fall short of God's glorious being and presence, and consequently we lose it. We lose it. But God. But God, through the gospel, gives believers hope that we will one day again be able to know it. Know what? Know God's glory. That one day we will be able to again experience God's glory and participate in God's glory, His glorious being and presence again. I invite you to turn to one other text in Romans. Got to flip forward to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And I want you to see how Paul uses this idea. And I think, I think he expounds on Romans 5 2 here in Romans 8. Look at verse 18. Romans 8 <clears throat> 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the, the glory. That is going to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it. With patience. Here in this passage, Paul personifies creation. He's got all animate and inanimate creation, like all animals, all plants, all matter groaning and longing for something. They're longing for the freedom to be able to glorify God and enjoy His glory, uh, the freedom that they know will be experienced by the children of God. The children of God. Here, the children of God will experience a glorious future filled with the full fruits. Since you're still in Romans 8, as it ends in verse 30, the full fruits of glorification. See the last word? Glorification. That's our future. Glorification. So in Romans 5 and verse 2, I think Paul foreshadows this text. And he says that we who've been justified by faith exalt in hope of our glory-filled future in the glorious presence of our great God. 
Perhaps saying it the way another apostle said it would help you grasp what I'm trying to say. You've already read it this morning. 1 Peter 5, verse 10. Peter said, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What a deal, men and women. You know what we bring to the negotiating table? We bring sin, condemnation, wrath, judgment. But God gives peace, grace, and hope of the glory of God to those who will believe in His Son for salvation. What amazing benefits we have in Christ. Colonial, know this. Know these benefits. And leave here today rejoicing in the goodness of God. Let's pray together. Father, I think it's easy for us to hear common or uh, familiar words like peace, grace, and hope. And hear a sermon foundational like this in Romans 5 and just say, you know, I've heard all that before. And not really stop and reflect and rejoice in this again. Lord, may we leave here today rejoicing that we are at peace with you. A lot of people in this world are not. They're scratching, clawing, looking for any way to justify themselves. Looking for any way to have peace with you. Not to be under your wrath. And yet that's the possession of believers in Jesus Christ. We can hear about grace. And yet not stop and think that in this text, in this text, you make it into a sphere or a realm in which we not only have initial access, but wherein we stand. Lord, thank you for your unmerited blessings and favor and kindness upon us. Thank you that this is our sure possession for now and forever because of Jesus. And it's easy for us to hear a phrase like hope of the glory of God and just let it roll off our backs like water. But Lord, you also have given to us a sure expectation that we will be able to participate in and enjoy something that was lost at the garden. Something that we never have fully experienced, and that is your glorious being. Without Christ, the glory of God would utterly consume us. We'd be nothing. But because of him, we have hope for the glory of God. I pray that as we leave, Lord, 
You'd encourage our hearts with this. May we tell others, may we boast in this. May we brag about this in a way, not as which we're like exclusive, but can you believe what God has done for us? May we tell others that this week as well. In Jesus' name, amen.